Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello! The dream snaker himself, Joshua Baker. I'm going second today. This is great. Moving up in the world. <laughs> and last but not least is our producer. How are the levels? How are the bars? AJ Faleri. The levels and bars are great. Uh, I am sufficiently anxious, as I always am when we have a guest on the podcast, in terms of recording stuff going wrong. Yeah, we have a guest on the show today. It's a very special episode. We recently wrapped up our read through a book, A Told the Hounds. A while back, Steve uh, very generously offered to put us in touch with AP Canavan, and uh, we reached out and we wanted to have him on the show. but he he said that he had only started doing some of this work with Steve around book eight. So we have been waiting on tender hooks for a few, few months now, more than a year, I think, to yeah. have him on the show. Here he is, AP Canavan, host of uh, The Critical Dragon and uh, a, a face you may know. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. It is really nice to be here. It's really nice to meet you all. Well, actually, I, let, let me qualify that. <laughs> Joshua, it's really nice to meet you. India, uh, Hello, <laughs> Peter, AJ. Yes. We are foes. It has been established. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, we had established before recording that uh, uh, if he was not too keen on Pete and I's takes uh, of, of Cracked Pot Trail. Well, <laughs> let's, let's just say that um, I, I thought that, that Josh really actually understood the book. AJ skim read half of it. That's and a fact. Peter misunderstood all of the things, even when he went, oh, it's this thing, and then couldn't make a connection between them. So I... <laughs> I had a great deal of respect for Joshua. Not not so much uh, uh, Peter and AJ. <laughs> India, though, yeah. wasn't on that particular discussion. Yeah. And, and that's why it's actually, it's quite nice to meet you, India. You Hello. too, honestly. <laughs> this is the best day of recording ever. I'm oh, so happy. Love, loving, loving the energy on the pod. So, uh... AP, we, I guess uh, let's start at the beginning. I mean, how did you encounter Malazan and did that precede you meeting Steve? How did you end up in this position of doing advanced reading for Steve? Um, I had met Steve and he had given me three of the Barclay and a Corbel Boats novellas. And uh, I read those and went, this this isn't really the sort of thing that I was looking for for my PhD. It's not what I was expecting. <laughs> but we kept meeting up at the same conference and uh, corresponding, chatting about things. He he listened to some of my academic research and papers. And over the course of that, he had emailed me while he was writing Told the Hounds. Now, at that stage, Ericsson had several advanced readers and uh, he'd been getting feedback from them as well. And then he had contacted me and uh, I ended up going down to spend the uh, weekend with him and his wife. And his wife was very trepidatious because it was like, what do you mean you've invited one of those weirdos down here? <laughs> <laughs> what, what if he's really strange? And it was, it was the fact that she emphasized the really bit, knowing that I was always going to be a little For bit strange. A little strange. bit, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Right. That, was, that was the basis of uh, me becoming one of Steve's advanced readers and it was the the start of us becoming friends as well like i've now known steve over 15 years so i guess the dinner went all right then <laughs> steve's wife and i had uh, some very spirited discussions she she is a brilliant forthright and passionate woman who will steadfastly defend her beliefs 
Mm-hmm. And it was it was brilliant because there, there's nothing better than sitting around being uh, challenged in conversation with people where they bring up points that you hadn't considered. They make you think about things in a new way. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why we read literature, because books are uh, arguments put forward by authors, points of view put forward by authors that sometimes challenge our own perspective on life. And it's a way of almost entering into a conversation with a different thought process, a different way of thinking about the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have a YouTube channel uh, and uh, you've been posting videos for the last like two-ish years. Uh, if About I, if a year I, and a half. About a year and a half, yeah. Um, and a lot of these ideas come up in your videos in terms of literature and, and how we you know read narrative and, and structure and stuff. Where did the inspiration to start a YouTube channel kind of come from for you was it was it this you you just wanted to talk about literature and fiction in these ways or was it just kind of like oh i could do this or erickson blackmailed me (laughs) okay all right that's on brand no what what actually happened was philip chase who also has a youtube channel um he had been starting a malazan reread right and uh, he'd done a couple of different videos on various aspects of fantasy. I'd commented on them and he recognized my name. So he had ended up getting in contact with me and I sort of appeared on his channel because just we were talking about Gardens of the Moon and then obviously talking about how I got to know Stephen Erickson and, and that sort of thing. And then between Philip Chase and Stephen Erickson, they were like, AP, go make a YouTube channel. AP, go and make a YouTube channel. AP, go and make a YouTube channel or we're not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's proper proper blackmail then. Yeah. Definitely. How do you come up with your content for it? What is what is your process? And does it take a lot of your time? Does it like eat up a lot of your, your free time? Well, coming up with ideas about how to discuss narrative is is not complex because like we're surrounded by narrative. Every TV show you watch, every film you watch, every book you read, news broadcasts, journalism. So there's so much narrativized content, even when people think that they are discussing something, you know, politics. Politics is generally narrativized because you cast one person as the bad guy, the other person as the good guy. We, we narrativize everything. And so because of that, you're just constantly swimming in things that you can talk about. Coming up with ideas for what might make an interesting video for people. Um, obviously, I new adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman has just aired. So I recorded a video about something that I found interesting in that adaptation, about one of the changes they'd made and and how it worked on screen and maybe why they made that change. I'm doing a read through, a reread of The Malazan Book of the Fallen with Philip Chase. So we check in every once in a while and we go through a non-spoiler sort of discussion of the book and then a sort of spoiler-filled discussion where we talk in more depth about various themes and, and aspects of the the narrative that were compelling or we thought were interesting. And then because I am a an editor, I, I do developmental editing as a, a side job, as a freelance job. There are aspects of that that some people find interesting. So sometimes I go in and do aspects of that, or I talk about general aspects of how narrative actually works, because we've been reading and consuming narrative so long. We think we know, yeah, I'm an expert. I've read 200 books. I know exactly what's going on. And yet when you start delving down into it, half the time you don't know why you liked something. You think you do, and then you see the exact same thing in another book and go, well, why didn't I like it in that book? And it's understanding how uh, authors manipulate us, how they achieve these effects in us, 
how the different structures work, how the different techniques they use actually work and what effects they create. That's an absolutely fascinating and a never-ending series of discussions because narrative constantly evolves and there are constantly new books and new stories to talk about. To steer us closer to some of the Malazan discussion, because I have lots of follow-up questions about the YouTube stuff, but I feel like there's more interest in that. But um, so when you speak about your job as an editor and you're doing this advanced reading, you know, I think I'd be curious to know, like, what does that process look like? Are you how much of it in its final form are you getting? What type of feedback are you giving? Like how many readers are there? I, you know, you, obviously some of this stuff may be proprietary, but, um, you know, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to share. Well, I do developmental editing. That's one thing. And I have also been an advanced reader for Steve. That's a different thing. Advanced mm. reading is not the same as developmental editing. But um, for advanced reading, uh, Ericsson go, has had and continues to have a number of different people he sends the manuscript to to ask for feedback. What I generally do to provide him feedback is when I am reading, I am noting down in the margins of the Word document things that I like, things that I don't like. Why don't I like them? Why do I like them? Uh, different things that are uh, confusing me or things that I go, oh, that does that link back to that? Because that would be really cool if that links back to that. And basically the entire thought process as you are reading, you're just basically annotating in the margin what you're thinking as you're reading. And so when Ericsson gets that back from me, he gets feedback of not only the overall, what do you think of the book? Oh, Aces, it, it was fantastic. I loved it. You know, 10 out of 10. What's it, what's it you guys say? Chef's kiss. Um, <laughs> and you can hear how awkward that sounds when I try to say it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you can give feedback like that and go, oh, yeah, I loved it. It's great. And that is absolutely useless to an author. It might make them feel good, mm -hmm. but that's not useful feedback. They want to track those moments where they are starting to lose you, where you're fully engaged. Uh, sometimes I'll make a note saying, I had to go back and make these notes because I ended up reading five pages in a row here because I was deeply invested in it. And then as soon as there was the section break, I had to go back and make my notes again. Hmm. You know, moments like that, that give an author a sense of how a reader is processing their work, how they are reacting, because that gives them an insight into mm, maybe this section is a bit slower than I'd intended, or they seemed really confused by this point. Maybe I need to make that a bit clearer here or earlier. And it's little things like that, that authors choose what to do with that feedback. So when then you're out and you're reading this, you know, you pick up Toll the Hounds, you pick up God is Now Willing, whatever book it is in its final form, would you say there's a great difference, some small difference? You know, how much of is there a big change from this advanced copy you've read? Um, the I, I think the God is Not Willing is the only one of St of Ericsson's books I have read the finalized copy of. Interesting. <sighs> well, since I started doing advanced reading for him. Obviously, sure. the, the ones that I've been reading through uh, prior to that, yeah. So Toll the Hounds was pretty much finalized before I gave him feedback. And there were, I think, I can't remember any particular tweaks that he made to Toll the Hounds. Mm. Uh, Dust of Dreams and the Crippled God. We've just finished Dust of Dreams, uh, Philip and I. And actually, yeah, in terms of changes, you're asking about something I read sure. what, fif 15 years ago. Yeah, Do yeah, I remember yeah. every... Oh, he, he moved that word and that word. Ooh. <laughs> Whoa. But to be perfectly honest, Ericsson actually creates very, very clean 
copy. And I don't think there are instances where he has ever made dramatic changes. Mm. So since so much of like your relationship with a lot of these books is like as an editor, it sounds like when you read for fun, do you find yourself still thinking with that part of your brain or do you try and turn it off as you like, you know, are reading for strictly pleasure? Column A, column B. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I, I try when I'm sitting down to read for fun, I try A, not to read in my in this place, my office, like mm -hmm. sitting at my desk mm -hmm. or near my computer. And it's one of the reasons why I don't like reading ebooks. Because as soon as I'm reading an ebook, I'm sort of in work mode. But if I change location and I'm holding a hard copy book, it is easier for me to kind of turn off a lot of that bit of my brain, except when something sticks out and then suddenly that bit kicks back in and you can't turn it off then because mm -hmm. you, you fall into that mode. And it's the same with watching um, TV. But for the most part, um, and it's it, one of the things that this is going to sound negative, and I don't mean it to sound negative. I couldn't do what you do because there is no way I could sit and do a chapter by chapter talk without having read the book first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, it, this would drive me absolutely insane because the idea of reading, like, say, two or three chapters and then now we're going to talk about what was in those chapters. You're like, how do you know what was in those chapters? How do you know what is relevant? Mm. Because you, you don't know how the narrative ends. You mm. don't know what is meant to be important. And so I would be spending all of that time constantly trying to come up with predictions about where the plot may go, where the characters <laughs> may go. And it would drive me insane because you cannot know that from the beginning. Think of watching the opening of Iron Man the film Iron Man, and you go, oh, right, I've watched the first six minutes. Now, stop the film. Everyone, let's sit and talk about the first six minutes of Iron Man. <laughs> you go, you wouldn't do that with any other form of mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it, it is something that people do with books. And I've never been able to do that. I have to finish the book first, and then I can go back and you can do a chapter by chapter breakdown. But you, you need to finish the arc first to understand what it is that's on the page, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I mean, a little a little inside baseball, I guess. But uh, for our show specifically, I think that having Pete kind of shape those discussions, I think alleviates a bit of that for us. But I do agree. There's a lot of things when as I'm reading it or as I'm like, OK, now I guess I have to talk about this thing on the show and I have no idea what just happened or like where it's leading or like if it's relevant at all. Uh, and so sometimes Pete will ask a question that's like, oh, what did you think about like this conversation between character A, character B? And I'm like, I didn't really get much from it. And then, you know, when we get to the end of the book, it's like, oh, I now see how this conversation was relevant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I get it now. But but uh, yeah, I, it's 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 certainly an, a, an interesting thing. But I think uh, having somebody who has read the entire thing to kind of give context for some of that stuff is definitely uh, helpful. It certainly seems like a, a, a change in almost like the modern way to approach books because we have this interaction on social media, be it in Discord or with podcasts or mm -hmm. things like where people do read-alongs. And you don't want to get too far ahead of the read-along. You want to be with everyone else. But because of that, we, we're sort of reading as a social experiment as opposed to reading. Mm. And how you then focus on what is happening in the narrative, you've actually changed how you've approached it and how you're thinking about oh, it. Definitely. hundred mm percent. -hmm. And because of that, I think that actually makes it more difficult to understand 
what is actually going on in the text. Because if you were just reading normally, you would read and you would get to a section, you would stop, and then you would read more and stop, and you would read more and stop, and then you would finish. But now, because you're putting in these arbitrary breaks, and because you're then trying to understand everything at that point in the narrative, you... You, I think you feel more confusion and you're struggle and you're trying to project more into the future instead of letting the narrative take you along, instead of mm-hmm. following what is happening and just relaxing into it. It's this constant eye on the future of, I need to try and work out what's going to be important here instead of, well, I'm just going to read it. And then mm-hmm. I can think about it later. I can look back on the text and, and look at it then. Yeah. I think uh, this is probably the last episode of the podcast then, and we will call it there. So thank <laughs> you. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably um, just like wrap it up, pack it up, bring it home. <laughs> pack it up, we're done. Yeah. But I do agree. Like when I think about reading the books, how we read them versus like me reading just a regular leisure oh, read. Totally it's different. Like, it is. It is totally night. And yeah. not only because I obviously chose the leisure read, but like, um, and, and can digest it easier but yeah just stop always thinking about what's going to happen is really um Mm. an extra level when you're reading these books ap is it is it frustrating to listen to our show for that reason like i because you've listened to (laughs) i have to i have to imagine i know many people are frustrated with the show so i I, advanced (laughs) listening (laughs) (laughs) well i will i will say i mean obviously every every reader who approaches a text is perfectly entitled to their opinion I, I strongly believe in that and I strongly support that. But there does come a, a time when you have to realize that, yes, that might be your opinion. That might be your reader experience. But readers are prone to misreading. And you have to be aware of that as a fact as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will have to admit to a, a smidge of maybe frustration is a, is a little too, too strong. Sure. But in listening to the discussion, which when people don't know what is important and they're they're trying to guess and it can be very very frustrating because i'm going well if you just read on to the next <laughs> chapter right Three that pages. would actually inform <laughs> the thing that you are now talking about mm-hmm. so i totally take on board that the structure with which you are approaching the narrative is very different to how i would talk about narrative how i would get students to read narrative and analyze narrative it's a very different thing and so i try to be aware of that but there isn't an element where sometimes I get a tad tetchy uh, <laughs> about your approach. Sure. And it, it's even like little things like because of my academic background, there are certain things that we do when we discuss narrative and we don't do. And one is we do not conflate the the author, the narrator, and the historical person. Mm. You don't. It's not Steve wrote this book. Steve didn't write this book. A person back at that time period called Steve London um, Mm. with a certain perspective and a certain intention started creates basically the persona of author. That author creates a narrator. The narrator is the one narrating the text to you. So the narrator is not the same as author. Author is not the same as the historical person. And none of them are the same as the person I currently know as Steve London because he is significantly older and wiser and has has had life experience since he wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when you see something in a text, you don't go, oh, that's because Steve wanted to do this. We would Mm -hmm. never do that because Mm -hmm. not only is it, well, it's very informal and obviously as an academic, you tend to be more formal, but Mm -hmm. it's also grossly inaccurate and incorrect because Steve wasn't doing that. That, It's nothing to do with Steve. So we, we tend, that's why we tend to refer when we're speaking about the authors, we tend to refer to them 
totally by surname. Like you go Ericsson. And mm. that helps me in my head separate out Steve, the person I know, and Ericsson, who is the construct of author that we've formed. And even then, like you've seen with Toll the Hounds, Toll the Hounds is overtly narrated by Krupp. But that's embedded in another narrative that has a different narrator. And you don't know what that narratorial position is at the minute. Mm. So there's a there's a lot of intentionality behind what narrators do uh, and how authors use narrators. And then with every single point of view character, because so many of the chapters are focalized through the point of view character, what a character does, how a character perceives events, is again this unreliable status of the narrative. And a couple of times now, I, I think you've fallen into the the trap of taking the surface level information Mm. and going, oh, so that's what it is. And the example I always use about this is if someone walked up to you and went, you know what, it's not you, it's me. You know, surface level meaning, oh, I'm okay then, it's not me, they've admitted fault. But obviously <laughs> deep down inside, you know, no, they're blaming you. Mm-hmm. And you, that's the difference between accepting what the surface level is and actually understanding there can be an intention behind it. There can be a subtext there can be cognitive uh, meanings, all of these other things. And so when we read, if we are just sitting on that surface layer, that's, it's perfectly valid to enjoy books of that kind, but that is a different sort of reading than anything in the Malazan Book of the Fallen, because those surface level narratives, which can be highly enjoyable, very well put together, brilliantly written, entertaining stories, typically are told to you. Whereas the Malazan Book of the Fallen is very much written as a story for you to read and understand these different layers. Mm. Was that a very long answer to what you expected to be a very short quest? It was a no. good answer. No, it's, it's a, good, a very it's a great, good answer. Yeah. It's a good answer. I appreciate the thoughts, of course. Um, I like some of the stuff about talking about the way the academic distinction between these authors and such. I mean, I guess part of me feels like now we're talking about the podcast and not talking about... <laughs> Malazan or, or but but, but I'll, I guess I'll share my thought is that definitely when you know years ago I'm reading these books I'm enjoying them I'm talking about them online and I'm like man it would be really fun if someone talked about these books or that there was some sort of rigorous discussion around the ideas and, and someone analyzing these books I would have really liked this and you know in at the time there was not and I was like well let I'll try and do it I'm an amateur let's try you know But the show, I think, ultimately became something very different. And I think as you're touching on the format of the show, by going through, I think, chapter by chapter and having the way we tackle it, I think ultimately, I think, lends itself to having stronger ability to express emotional reactions or to make jokes or to do some sort of conversation around it than I think it is to do any sort of rigorous analysis or academic analysis you know and definitely we like dabble in doing it sometimes but i i certainly have moved away from feeling like that's the thrust of what we're doing on the show but it's the what i think what's tough is i'm obviously somewhat still interested in it so we still i think indulge sometimes in what i would say are somewhat you know i, I i'm not going to call them the most i I'm not writing an academic paper when we're recording the podcast and just throwing ideas around, you know? So I I totally get a lot of what you're saying. I think it's just, um, it's why I think in a way we've tried to move towards a more casual type of show at times, you know? Oh yeah, but uh, and that's why we have, we have things like, this is basically an online book club. Yeah. 100%. Where 
where you get together. But again, when you think of online or when you think of book clubs, generally they read the book and then they get together and talk about it. So that going through it chapter by chapter, that that is what I was trying to get at in terms of a structural change. That it actually it radically alters how you approach. One hundred percent, it totally changes the way you do it, and definitely, I think it fundamentally affects any attempt at doing analysis to the book. So. And one of the, the great things is podcasts like yours or the various uh, YouTube channels that uh, discuss different books or focus solely on Malazan content, the subreddit that is all about Malazan content, mm-hmm. that there are so many different ways to discuss books. There are so many different ways to find your community. And these are all good things. And I wasn't saying that you shouldn't do it, but you did we're gonna, ask. We're going to stop the show. But you did ask, does it sometimes frustrate you? And I'm like, yeah, because how I think about books, how I talk about books is is not what you guys are doing. Yeah. And so I was giving you an honest answer. We we, we appreciate the answer. No, it was Uh a great answer. So I'm in a 0% offended or upset. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you're touching on what I think is kind of the great aspect. A lot of this book centered content on YouTube or podcasts is that I think it opens doors for people to engage with different types of books and to find a community who they want to talk about it with. So that's why when people bounce off our show or don't like our opinions or whatever, you know, I don't care about this at all. This is great. And I'm glad that there are these other venues that they can connect with the work the way they want to and that they can Mm -hmm. have some sort of meaningful relationship with, you know, this book or other books. You know, I'm not precious about my the show at all, you know. And obviously those people can can still tune into the show and listen listen to Josh because he sure. does have good opinions about <laughs> crackpot. Josh trail. has the right opinions. Exactly. Um <laughs> unlike unlike AJ and, and yeah, Peter there. So, so it's you know, you can still listen to the book. Yeah. <laughs> well let me add, let me follow up with this a, a word you said. I, you you use the word misread, which I would love to know what you mean by that. So do you, are you familiar with the poem The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost? Almost every school kid has studied The Road Not Taken. Weirdly, mm-hmm. I had to memorize it. So what is the what is the central message of the road not what's the central meaning of the road not taken? Sure. It's about maybe a regret about choices you didn't make in life, something like that. Although it's actually at the end, there's a different thing. So it's about choices you make in life. Let's say that. <laughs> no, it's it's that's not what it's actually about. That is the popular reading of the text, which is a misreading of the text. Mm. And the reason we know it's a misreading of the text is if you look at one of the early lines, it says basically it doesn't make a difference which path mm. the guy chooses. It makes it makes no difference. But they they choose the, the path less traveled by as if it's going to be better. And most people understand that poem to mean that instead of doing the same thing that everyone else does, you should go your own way because that's going to be better. That's how most people understand that poem. But that is a misreading of the actual text. Yes, that is the message they get out of it. But they get that message through misunderstanding what is physically written on the page. Hmm. And misreading is if you read Lolita, by Nabokov and came out of it going, this is a wonderful alternative romance. You have categorically misread that text. That is not what that text means. It is not what that text is trying to articulate. It's not what that text is doing. You have fundamentally misread it. If you read Animal Farm and go, oh, that was a wonderful story about talking animals. (laughs) You are misreading what is in the text. It is possible to misread. And also added to that, even if you don't want to worry about uh, intention, an author's intent or any of those sorts of aspects, 
But if you think of uh, the Mandela effect, mm. you all know about the Mandela effect. It's discussed online all the time, and you're young people who use the internet. <laughs> um, but the Mandela effect shows us how fallible our brains are. So when you think back to something that happened in this book and you go, but it said that thing, you go, well, no, it didn't. And you flip back to that page and go, oh, it, it didn't actually say that thing. I was wrong. How do you describe that apart from you have misread because you misremembered something that created meaning mm. and you as reader are the one creating meaning from the text. And if you are the one creating meaning, you have to admit that as a fallible human being, you can make mistakes. Mm. Unless, of course, anyone is suggesting that they are infallible. Because I'm not. I, I can make mistakes when I read. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no shame in that. We are all human. We are all fallible. We all have limits to what our memories can do. And also when we're reading, sometimes we get distracted and we skip a line. Or you're like AJ and you skip huge chunks of a book and just skim little bits of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, That's dessert. Yeah. <laughs> but when when you do that, when you might miss misread a word, uh, you read it as financier instead of fancier. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a like a very literal aspect of misread. Or when you misinterpret what's on the page where it says that so-and-so did something and you misremember it as a different person did it. You've misread. Mm -hmm. So like all of these things are possible when you read. Mm -hmm. I will say I caveated my road is not taken interpretation. I feel like I still <laughs> said it correctly, but we found the infallible we'll person. We'll yeah. leave it there. That is not what the thrust of that dialogue was about. So what I wanted to follow up, what I wanted to follow up on was I think the reason I, I bring this up is because I do feel like sometimes in discussions around the Malazan books, there is like an idea that these are what the books mean. And then if, you're reading it differently, you are misreading it, you know? And I, of course, there are literal occasions that you're touching on where you're just wrong on what the text says, you know? And that's indisputable. But I guess I feel when it comes to these interpretations a lot of the times that there are maybe a cluster of plausible interpretations and then there are ones that are just not really related to the text or are not compelling or that they wouldn't be justified. I, I guess I don't really view interpretations a lot of the time as this all or nothing wrong or incorrect thing. As that there oh, okay, Peter, hang on. Let me, let me stop you there. Okay. You've just said, so there might be some that are valid and then there's some that are out there that are just, you know, there's nothing to them. You go, so if someone has one of those ones, you're saying that they've misread the text, they've misunderstood it. Yeah, well, I, like, sure. I, I, that is literally what you've just said. I totally seed you on that. I, I'm totally good on that. But all I mean is I think there's a cluster of times where that there's going to be multiple readings of text that can be read different ways. And I think that is, um, I don't know, I think that can get conflated with people trying to declare one reading more correct than another reading. And I think that's what Which I Which is what you just did. You just said some readings are more correct than others. What is the difference between someone saying, well, this reading is, is more correct than your reading, and you go, oh, no, no, but my reading's valid, and you saying it to someone else and saying, oh, but like my reading of it is valid, but yours is way out there. Well, I think it comes down to how compelling the argument you are making in relationship to the text. You know, I think if you were trying to say, oh, Malazan is a book about space, I think you would have a hard time making that argument, but I think you can have different arguments based on the text. So Yeah, you can. So what you're saying is you fundamentally agree that you can misread and misunderstand the text. Sure, yeah. You fundamentally agree with that. Sure. And then where we're getting the dividing line is, is there only one correct interpretation or are there multiple ways to read? And I, don't I even, never said I, that there's only one way. Yeah, I don't even think, I don't think there is a dividing line. I was just prodding on this because sometimes I feel, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a hobby horse of mine. So I, I wanted to 
feel into this. I don't I don't actually feel like we're in a great disagreement here. No, we're not, because you fundamentally agree that a text is not infinitely flexible. It cannot contain every possible interpretation because the text is finite. Well, sure. And it, it you, can't you, do that. you can say whatever you want about a text, but it's like ultimately if you make an argument that has no connection to the text, it's pretty much worthless, you know. But a lot of people make they think they are making a connection to a text. They think they are basing it in the text. And you can take their argument and show them why that's not based in the text. Now, for that person you're explaining it to, where you've said, listen, you've misread that, that's not there. They'll go, no, it is there. This is what the difference between a reading experience and analysis is. Because their reading experience is, they, that's what they experienced. Mm -hmm. That's how they interpreted the text. But you can point to it and show how what they have drawn from it is not there. That they have misread something. And with a short poem, there might be a couple of different readings, a couple of different ways to interpret it. With a novel, because novels are made up of scenes and chapters and maybe sub books within it, novels are so much more complex in certain ways compared to uh, a short poem mm. that you can have a significant divergence of opinion about what certain sections mean, particularly when authors build a level of ambiguity into a text. And this is one of the differences between a text that is written more in a tale style, which has a very clear intent about how you're meant to interpret it, and something that's written more in a show style, which allows subtext uh, to be created and understood and interpreted by a reader. So Hemingway described it as the iceberg storytelling method, where there is a concrete level of description. There's a concrete level of what is going on. That's what's on the page. And then there is something that is implied. And every reader is engaged in visualizing, in understanding and extrapolating what part of the iceberg is below the water. And when you do that, some readers are more meticulous in their interpretation. Some readers get misled because they mistakenly read one thing earlier on and that leads to a cascade error as they go through the text. That doesn't invalidate uh, what they experienced. They came out of that text going, oh my God, this text did all of these things. And you can go, oh, that sounds really weird. And it's not that they didn't experience it. It's you go, that's not actually in the text. And there are different ways to interpret stuff. And it can change on a paragraph, sentence, paragraph, scene, chapter level. And the idea way, way back in time was that the author's intended reading of a text was the definitive reading. And that's what we got rid of, but we don't discount authorial intent because we think about it all the time. What was the author trying to communicate? What is this meant to mean? And we don't discount the author's position, but we no longer regard it as the definitive way that you must read and understand the text. Mm. And when aspects of a text are concrete, that's when we go, oh, that's what this means. And when someone comes in and says about that section, oh, it, it it's interpreted this way. You go, no, it's not. Look, look what it actually says on the page. That's, that's where we get into this discussion. And once you take in the complexity of the combination of different scenes and different chapters, uh, books in a series, to try and get an, uh, an overall picture, that's when you get huge variances in meaning and understanding. Because you're dealing with all of these different details, all of these different facets, and every reader will prioritize and deprioritize information differently. And every reader will project onto the text 
things that they think are important and things that they are obsessed with or conscious of or are important to them. We have like projection is a very real psychological thing. And we do that with text. When we don't understand something, we tend to read it with the lens through which we understand the world. And that's where our unconscious bias, uh, our background, our culture, our gender, our ethnicity, our age group, our education, all of these things play into it in our understanding. And that gives us an individual perspective. But not every single individual perspective of a text is equally valid. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, I think we're in full agreement here, so... Is this the same, like, am I getting credit for this towards, like, an English degree? Is that how this works when you come on to shows? <laughs> um, I think you, you could con lo contact a local community college, see if they yeah. float you some credits. Also, I do have a quick, r real quick room clearing, not clearing, I guess, whatever. What is your dissertation on, I cannot find it anywhere? Um, it is essentially looking at a narratological, the narratological impact of role-playing games on the mega text of genre fantasy. Uh, so looking at basically tech, uh, fantasy texts from the late 80s uh, and 90s and how they, we have a perception of what the genre is because we have this assumption, Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, the genre coalesced around Tolkien, even though there are precursors to Tolkien, even though there are other texts that are important to the genre. But Tolkien stands out as this sort of lodestone that the genre coalesced around. And my argument in the thesis was that role-playing games represented another new text that actually changed the shape of the genre quite perceptive, uh, perceptively. That you can see elements of Tolkien, how they get rewritten, changed. And th those changes, what we now see as common in the genre, we can actually locate around role-playing games and the popularity of role-playing games because they were the direct ancestors of all the computer games and all of the RPGs. Mm -hmm. And if you think like World of Warcraft, I think at its height had something like 12 million monthly mm -hmm. subscribers. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, how many people read, uh, you know, you pick a fantasy book from the 1990s. You go, how many people read that? Was it 12 million a month? Hmm. So World of Warcraft must have had an impact on how people perceive fantasy. And all of the, the basic tenets and the basic principles and the paradigm it's operating in comes directly from role-playing games and that mathematical model and a lot of the stuff that they did, even though they, they do their own thing. And when you think of the number of uh, online role-playing games, each with significant monthly subscriptions and the number of people who played these computer games in the, in the 90s and went on to write their own books now, that was my argument, that role-playing games actually changed a lot about the genre, and literary analysis has a tendency to be a little bit blind to non-literary narrative forms. When when was that published? When, when was that... Well, I'm just curious <laughs> if it was pre... I, well, I'm just curious if it was pre or post Malazan, because I feel like Malazan is a really interesting intersection between the role-playing space and... I was finishing it up when I met Erickson. I, I okay. It it was a while back. Sure, but it was the the the, the series was almost you know it was nearing completion at that point then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, I feel like me me Josh and Pete just released an episode on the Patreon talking all about tabletop role playing and and its influences on fantasy and stuff. Uh, so I feel like this could be a whole other just like <laughs> India. I'm really no. sorry. <laughs> 
I get now. See the the extra episodes. I kind of I get. I stay out of those mostly. <laughs> um, it's a lot of reading, too much reading. Mm. And I, as you probably know, uh, I've never read the genre before, and I don't particularly love it. I'll be honest. So as many times as like they they read a lot of things, and uh, I I've committed to Malazan, Malazan, whatever we call it, the one and only. <laughs> AP, AP what, so it seems like you've been reading fantasy for a long time or, or mired in the genre. What, what, how do you feel like what initially drew you into it? Well, when I was, when I was growing up, uh, obviously, like, I, I read a lot of, you know, as a little kid, like a lot of fairy tales and a lot of kids' stories that are based on fairy tales and science fiction stories that were written for kids. And I loved the fantastical elements. And then, you know, obviously in school, you're handed things like um, Jane Austen and Nathaniel Hawthorne and Shakespeare. Quite enjoyed Shakespeare. But I realized that I actually loved storytelling. But because school was focused with like good literature, sure. my leisure time I devoted to bad literature. I mm. stuff I actually enjoyed and realized that mm-hmm. it was an arbitrary uh, it was an arbitrary division that was being made in the school. And, you know, you read something like Milton's Paradise Lost and you go, is that, is that fantasy? You read Beowulf, is that fantasy? Now, it's not part of the modern fantasy genre because when we talk about genre fantasy or the genre of fantasy, we're, we're talking about a very specific thing. We're not just talking about it has fantastic elements. So when someone says, oh, the very first fantasy novel, you go, right, you, you actually need to locate that much closer to the 20th century than you think. Um, but you can have a look for various urtexts uh, even if you can't locate a very specific one, you can find elements and it's recursive. You can keep going back and back in time to find all the things that inspired it. But when I was at school, like reading, uh, I went into the, the school library and asked for uh, Dante's Inferno sure. and uh, the Divine Comedy. So I, I read that when I was at school because I was just interested. And there was an entire section in my, my local bookshop of these things, people with swords and people with spaceships. And I just went and read them all and mm. was fascinated by how they they use narrative in different ways. Did you want to talk about Toll the Hounds at all? Well, <laughs> part, part of me, I have to tell you, like 30 minutes in, I was like, I guess me and we're going to talk Toll the Hounds in the spoiler thing. I feel like we've got, this has just become the AP chat, which works for me, you know? Yeah. Me too, honestly. I'm very sorry. Oh, you're good. I know. It's, no, it, no, it's no, great. This is, what we, this is what we wanted. Yeah. This is the content we wanted. We just talked about all the hands for 10 hours. Yeah. We're This is great. So How much more can we talk about it? <laughs> and then to talk about it again We're going to talk about it again Please with know. Steve. Yeah, Soon that's enough. true. Like, that's true. Yeah. Maybe we transition into doing the spoiler thing. So um, let's wrap this episode up. <laughs> well, it just, I think we should make the... Wow. the well, just, sorry. I Just really quickly before we go sure. into the, the wrapping up this, this section, I do just want to ask, you know, obviously Malazan is a gamed world. Steve was a, a gamer in a past life. Are, what is your experience with like role-playing games and stuff? Tabletop or, or computer or otherwise? Yeah, tabletop, computer or otherwise. That, that would be my experience. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, when you read, when you read the, the Dragonlance Chronicles, the original Dragonlance Chronicles by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, they were playtesting a new game basically for, for D&D, the, mm-hmm. the Dragonlance uh, game. Mm-hmm. And they recorded the, the campaign... The person they had roped in to play Tasselhoff Burfoot completely reimagined what that character was like, which is why the character is like that in the books. Hmm. And they went through using, uh, you can actually buy a copy of it, which is the annotated 
Dragonlance Chronicles. And it shows how that was very much them developing a world and testing out the new game system and, and whether or not it would work. And that led to the creation of that. When you look at uh, Douglas Niles' uh, Moonshade trilogy, which was the first Forgotten Realms yeah. trilogy, that was very Celtic myth inspired, but it wasn't as heavily based on the game system. It was taking the setting and, and building out from the setting a very Celtic inspired sort of thing. You contrast that with Ari Salvatore, who starts off with a like the glacier setting of Icewind Dale. Mm-hmm. And there are slightly more elements of the game in that, but again, he's not bound by the rules. So there are all of these different ways, even within books that you're just reading, that you are experiencing aspects of the game. And then when you think of the the early like Eye of the Beholder game or Baldur's Gate, and as you start moving through time, getting a lot of these RPGs that went from uh, the sort of freeze frame 2D stuff like uh, Eye of the Beholder into things like Baldur's Gate, which is the is- classic isometric RPG game, and then into even stuff like Diablo 3. All of those elements play into it. And then with wargaming, because obviously wargaming is an essential component sure. of where Dungeons and Dragons came from, mm. and Warhammer and Warhammer 40k are both evolutions of that form. Um, so it's just, there are so many different types of it mm. that you're just, you're just surrounded by. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, AP. Um, do you want to let people know what your YouTube channel's about? I'm sure, I feel like they have to have seen it if they're listening to our show. The odds of someone listening to us this deep and not knowing his YouTube channel are pretty slow. But, but they should check <laughs> it out. So, what about your other socials, AP? Are you on the gram? Well, I just wanted to add you on Instagram. Uh, Am I on the gram? Are you trying to insinuate that I do drugs? <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen. I'm not. I'm not insinuating anything. I'm, if you do, as, as I sit here with my energy drink. Yeah. Um, no, I. I am an infrequent visitor to Twitter. I am an extraordinarily infrequent visitor to Iskar Jarek's Discord, mm. and. I maybe once every month or two months will browse the first five categories in the subreddit of the, <laughs> sure. the Molasses subreddit. I am not an online person. <laughs> but you should check out his YouTube channel. We'll put it in the description. So. Yeah, it'll be linked in the show notes. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, everyone. The rest of the off season should be coming out, off, out soon. Yep. Have a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here. So glad that I'll soon be able to record without my air conditioner once again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. And of course, thank you to our wonderful guest, AP Canavan. Uh, Like we just said, a link to AP's YouTube channel, A Critical Dragon, can be found in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of a Toll the Hound-centric discussion with AP, you can look forward to next week's episode when Pete sits down with him to talk about Toll the Hounds and the rest of the series. Uh, If you'd like to give us your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes, you can always email us 10verybigbooks at gmail.com. You can tweet us at 10verybigbooks or you can head on over to our Discord. Uh, That's bit.ly slash VBB Discord. It's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D. Discord, that link will also be in our show notes. Thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon. If you'd like to financially support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10verybigbooks and for $1, you can get access to all of our bonus content, including the new series 
that we're doing talking about uh, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. All of that, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10 books. That link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Geserich for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter at A underscore W underscore Dan G for the hottest iPhone 14 takes. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode, including the remixed intro and outro track, is by the one, the only Amaranthan from his album Simulant Rain, which you can find along with his other music on bandcamp.com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes, and 10 Very Big Books will be back in one week on September 16th with the Toll the Hounds spoiler cast once again featuring the illustrious AP Canavan. We'll talk to you then, and thank you so much for listening. All right, let's do a clap. Three, two, one. Huzzah. Huzzah. You know you can see a doctor about getting rid of that clap. Ah, Nice. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (sighs) That was a good one. I like that. Oh, Indy's in such a a good mood today. We've clapped for, what, 87 episodes or something, and we've never had that (laughs) (laughs) that joke come up.